Hi, I'm Phnom, a Beat the Often Path by uh, turning science fiction into reality for a better future. Phnom Bagley designs the future of everything on and off planet Earth. She co-founded Nonfiction, a design firm that turns science fiction into reality for a better future. She's a TED speaker who has designed new food systems for astronauts and who really sees the bigger picture in everything that she does. I'm not going to lie to you, her company closely parallels the vision that I have for myself, for my own future, and for my own company. So it's been deeply fascinating talking with someone who has truly shaped an unusual life of exceptional meaning. Joining us now is Phnom Bagley. I'm Ross Palmer, and this is Beat the Often Path. All right, welcome to the show, Phnom. It's so great to have you here. You have built what appears to be from the outside a dream life, doing some incredibly weird and futuristic things. So talk to me a little bit about what you're doing and how you ended up here, because it's quite bizarre. Yes. Um, so I'm based in San Francisco today, but I originate from uh, Paris, France. And uh, throughout my life, uh, I've always loved the infinitely small and infinitely big and the um, you know things that seem to be unattainable, and I wanted to attain them. And so uh, with the inspiration from science fiction and movies and literature, I was able to really practice uh, an expansion of my imagination. And so I wanted to find a career that allowed me to do that and get paid for it. And so through many trials and tribulations, I ended up starting my own design firm called Nonfiction in 2016 with my partner, Martis Bagley. And what the premise of the company is, is that we take science fiction and then we make it real. And uh, we do that for I the benefit that. of humans and, and the planet. And uh, we practice in different ways. So we design a lot of physical products, uh, practicing what's called industrial design, which is the design of mass manufactured products specifically. And I'm also a space architect. So that is someone who designs how astronauts live and work up in space, whether it's in microgravity uh, around the Earth or on the surface of the moon or Mars. And so that kind of like mental trip between uh, what's going on on Earth and what's going on in space and back and forth is really at the root of what they do every day. I mean, how cool is that for the people listening? That's just awesome. It sounds, and you said in your TED Talk that, yes, it's a real job, which I still can't believe, honestly. And I think a lot of people might have their doubts as well. Yes, it's a real job somehow. But your TED Talk is quite nice because you talk about the food that astronauts eat and a lot of these aspects of making that journey more livable and more enjoyable. People have this vague recollection of these 1960s era astronaut food, like tang and freeze-dried ice cream and all of those things. And you're saying, what if we reimagine that and built a, a device that you can actually grow plants, you can have kale, you can have certain types of plants that grow, not only for better quality food and produce for the astronauts as they travel, but also to give them the peace of mind and that connection to something organic when they're surrounded by buttons and wires and things that are whirring and beeping in a very cold climate. So that, to me, seemed just like a really awesome endeavor. How did you get in a position where you were able to propose or build or conceive of something like that that's so complicated? By the way, this is the best recap of the project I've ever heard. Thank you for that. Um, yes. So it all, <laughs> it all started as a competition put together by uh, NASA, the Canadian Space Agency, and Methuselah Foundation, which is a foundation that focuses on longevity. And so the premise 
of the competition was how do we feed uh, astronauts going to, to, to deep space missions, which means really long-term missions like going to Mars. And so we started researching, you know, what were they, the biggest challenge to even go to Mars and, you know, the rocketry and, um, you know, how do we design uh, space modules is going to be figured out eventually. But, but it seems that food is one of those problems we don't have a solution for quite yet. Because what's common for astronauts to eat right now is uh, freeze-dried food or ready-to-eat food. And a lot of these are, um, you know, have an expiration date of about two years. And going to Mars and back is going to take between two and, a, three, two and a half and three years. So it doesn't work. So instead of just thinking about the reconstruction of micronutrients, like what you described um, was, was done in the 1960s, what we wanted to do was, was offer these astronauts real food, real macronutrients, um, food that they can relate to emotionally, feed, uh, food that really feed their souls. and uh, reintegrate rituals and culture into their life as they're putting their lives on the line, right? Here, we're asking these astronauts to, to, to go on an extremely dangerous uh, mission, uh, to be exposed to uh, levels of radiation that no humans have ever experienced before, uh, isolation, being away from family and friends, uh, all of that is a lot. So whatever comfort we could give them from an experiential standpoint, is what we wanted to bring into, into that project. I think it's such a great idea, but it's proof that you can, I guess, seek out these kinds of challenges and attempt to solve them, in this case, in the form of a competition, where you sort of invite yourself to do that. I think for many people who are stuck in a career that they don't like, their world has shrunk from a world of possibilities and imagination from when they were a child. You know, my, my daughter just graduated from daycare and all of the kids, half of them wanted to be an astronaut, the other half wanted to be a police officer. But from that world of possibilities, it seems like we get shrunk, you know, smaller and smaller into a tinier box where now my career is just shuffling form A to form B and just going input-output. How have you been able to focus on larger problems in general, because on your website, you focus on quite a large range of different types of forward-thinking projects. How have you been able to do that and get paid for it in a world where this job doesn't exist? You can't just apply for this job, generally speaking. That's right. I had to invent it. And it all started about five years ago when I went on one of these personal and professional development workshops called Hive. Uh, in, uh, in California. And uh, one of the exercises we had to go through was, what is your life purpose? And I, and I remember at that moment, I never really asked myself that because I was so interested in every single subject. I was interested in physics, in biology, in design, in architecture, in, in you know, policy and all, that, all of that. But I really had a hard time making a mark in the world because people were very confused about what it was about. <laughs> and so yeah. the, right. Um, and so the first year I went through that workshop, I actually did not find my life purpose. I went through the exercise and I went through all the, uh, you know, uh, uncomfortable part of the exercise, trying to break down what I loved and, uh, what would will need uh, needed and things like that. But, but I still couldn't put it in one sentence. So what I did is that I came back the next year and reconnected with all these people again. And then I found it. I found the phrase turning science fiction into reality for a better future. 
What this sentence means to me is that it is all-encompassing, but also it's very aspirational, right? I look to the future uh, through the lens of utopia, um, which might sound a little naive, you know, when, yeah, uh, but, but I think that uh, hopeless sense of hope that I have about the future and the fact that I can have a say in it is the driver of all things. And then from there, we started attracting as a company all of these incredible companies that actually do that, right? They turn science fiction into reality to make the world a better place. And that can, can mean, you know, people who work in neuroscience and trying to help people sleep or, or people, you know, recover from depressive uh, states. Uh, that can mean uh, redesigning an educational system that actually puts the human at the center of their growth rather than, than the economy that surrounds themselves. And then uh, when it comes to space, uh, it was the revolution of thinking about space beyond function, right? We've been thinking about space, about how do we send a rocket up to space? How do we bring these people back alive? But to me, I wanted to build space cultures. I wanted to integrate and export all the beauty of this planet to other places uh, in the solar system. So kind of redefining all of that through the lens of science fiction and through the lens of social and environmental impact made my work so incredibly meaningful. And that's why work is not work to me, right? I come, mm. I come to the office and we have between six and 12 projects going on at the same time. Yeah. And it's the funnest juggle I can think of. That's so cool. I mean, you described my perfect vision and that's why I'm so excited to talk to you because I run a marketing agency and I have done digital marketing for a very long time. But of course, my dream is to only have clients in these fields. And I've done this podcast. I've talked to enough phenomenal individuals at this point that you have this sense of something out there that's greater, that's possible. You see smart people working on smart things that are also grounded in the realities of our planet. That's where I want to live. So when I look at you and your work, it seems like uh, something that I would strive to be in, let's say, three to five years from now, where all of my clients are doing those things. And and I've found it to be very difficult, to be very honest with you in the beginning, because you're just trying to get business at first. And so you have to be a little less picky about the kind of business that you take on. But I would love it if every single client, every single project that I worked on was in alignment with that greater sense because I think I share the exact same value system that you do and that's what I want too. So how do you think that I or people like me, how can I move more towards only getting the kind of clients that I want and sustaining my business with better projects that are more exciting? Like yourself and everybody you 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 just mentioned, um, when I started my company, we were in that situation too. We had to say yes to a lot of projects that were not that interesting, right? Designing computers or, or speakers or things like that. I've done that for many mm -hmm. years before. And so that actually gave us a leg up to create a sense of ease in attracting what we actually wanted. And then that episode of finding my life purpose was actually the shift. It was, it was what happened to the, the, the ma major shift that completely changed how people perceived us and also um, and how we kind of redefined it ourselves. Another thing that we did was putting ourselves out there, right? I do pretty extensive public speaking uh, in person that, or, yeah. or sometimes online. And uh, I also go to a lot of uh, conferences and events uh, where I, I network pretty heavily. 
But I don't network in the sense of, you know, what is your business card? What kind of big company do you work for? Like, I actually don't care about that. What I care about is what kind of story do you have to tell me? How can we build something together that will make this world better in every way, right? That's that's how I start conversations. And, um, and that has made it very clear to the world where my position is, but also... Um, uh, helps me attract the people that I want. And the people that I don't want to attract, usually they just stay away, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just mentioned the fact that I don't care about how big or, or fancy your resume is. Uh, I have learned through the years that a lot of people who, um, you know, tend to to go for these jobs actually can't do anything. Uh, <laughs> um, sorry, but it's true. Um, it's true, yeah. And, um and, and, and I've always been the kind of person who uh, believes that if I don't know how to do it, then I need to learn how to do it, right? Even when I teach my team how to do new things, I can't just like, you know, throw them um, some example and say, hey, just do that. I actually have to learn how to do it and understand the struggle it takes to learn something new in order to teach better, right? And that's the kind of leadership I've always uh, practiced and that actually keeps me sharp, right? I'm not the kind of person who speaks a lot about the future without practicing it. I put my hands in the dirt. I make prototypes. I design. I CAD. I do all those things because there's something that happens in the brain that that allows me to think deeply about the why, the who, the what, the where, the when behind every every decision that we make. How cool is that? So when you're building your team, what are some of the things that you look for in people who join you? First of all, how many employees or how many people do you have working on your projects now? And how do you find and vet and ensure that you only have the right kind of people for those roles? Yeah, we are a team of between 8 and 12 people, depending on the time of the year. And... um, Related to what I just said, like, I don't care where they went to school. I don't care what kind of company they've worked at before. But what I care about is what can they do and how far can they think, right? I need people who are comfortable with being uncomfortable, who uh, see the impossible as a challenge, and who uh, typically work pretty fast. So I'm someone who moves very fast, right? I need to make decisions very quickly and see iterations and then make the right decision at the right time. Um, and, and I need a team that kind of follows me doing that. So as a creative director within the team, um, I rely on people's expertise. Each of these employees have a very specific ex- expertise, whether it's design or filmmaking or storytelling or strategy. And I rely on their storytelling skills to convince me that their idea is great. Um, and then from there, we can then talk to the client and convince them that the idea is great. We're always looking for the magic, right? Magic is very important to us because, Mm. you know, sure, we can design yet another wearable that does the same thing as the competitor. But if you have a little bit of magic in the way it's being used, in the materials that's being uh, put on on, on the surface or, or the experience that you have with an app, all of that is going to make the product memorable, is going to trigger behavior change, and is going to build new habits that are healthier for the people we're designing for. And so thinking kind of holistically about all of that is so important in the, in, in, in the way we do things. 
another thing that's important about the people that we recruit is that they must not be afraid of being extremely technical. So it's very common for designers to be afraid or confrontational with engineers, for example. That's a big no-no for me. Uh, engineers to me are our best friends. They are the people who make our work even possible. And it is our responsibility to be friendly and collaborative with them in order to, to push a good idea forward. That makes sense. So when you structure this, you take on clients, um, when you have this kind of big thinking world that you're living in, how do you make sure that they're on board? Because I assume a large part of what you have to do is thinking and just conceptualizing, because especially if you're building something that was never built before. So how do you structure that or explain that to your clients in such a way that they understand and they give you that freedom that you can play with ideas versus, you know, we need something in three days and it has to be like this. How do you expand their thinking when they hire you? So it all starts with what we call a um, um, introductory workshop. And so during that workshop, we kind of define who are you as a company? Who are you as a founder? Why did you start this company? Really like digging deep into all of these essential questions. Because some people forget, right? Sometimes they're like knee deep into, into a problem or in a, in a round of funding and, and they forget why they start all of this. So we, we redefine that. And then we go through uh, what we call the six questions. Uh, these are six essential questions that uh, validate whether a project should exist or not. Um, and so that's an exercise we go through with our with our, uh, our clients, every single one of them, small, big, everything in between. And so the six questions are the following. Why should this exist? Uh, what are we saying with this product or this solution? Uh, when is it going to become real? Um, uh, what is it? Uh, sorry, how, how do we make it real? When is it going to make an impact? And uh, who is it serving? Um, I think that's, that's all of them. Um, so anyway, so, so we go through this exercise and have multiple members of the client size and multiple members of our creative team uh, answering these questions, you know, and, and really having our brain travel from the perspective of the user, from the perspective of the market, from the perspective of, of perhaps the earth, and, and understand what is the implication of this product existing in the world in the future. And then from there... We, um, we, we kind of like break down where are we going, right? And then we can, be, we can get a sense of how outrageous the client is willing to go, right? And then we will go very far. And then some clients are very uh, cautious, especially people who work in uh, first responder, uh, the, like first responders, like firefighters, police officers that we work with. You know, it's a little bit um, of, a, of, a, of, of crafting the story in a way that doesn't push them off that we have to do uh, during the exercise. So, so we craft all of that. And at the end of that introductory workshop, we have a good idea of what we should do, how far we can go, and where we should start. And so, so that's, that's actually been a, one of the most effective exercises that we do. That's very cool. So what if somebody comes back to you and they say, you say, why should this exist? And they say, to make me as much money as possible. When should it exist now? Who is it serving me, the CEO, to make me rich? <laughs> like a lot of people are in business, not for altruistic reasons. Um, 
how do you find those types of entrepreneurs that are motivated by, or business owners that are motivated by some of these grander ideals than just maximizing shareholder value in the short term or just making as much money as possible in the short term? Yeah. Well, the thing about making as much money as possible is that we shouldn't like shun that either. I mean, of course, uh, otherwise they wouldn't start a company, right? Um, but at the same time, um, so the people who describe themselves as, as what you just said, they can't work with us. We actually have conditions to work with us now. Uh, condition number one, it has to be a first-to-market innovation or product. Uh, so everybody who wants to do a Me Too product or, you know, uh, go after a market that uh, already exists, um, we're not interested. Condition number two is that it has to serve at least one of the 17 um, uh, sustainable development goals. Put together I saw by that. United That's Nation. my favorite part. So awesome. Yeah. I love so, that. So, so th this list is, you know, uh, encompasses poverty and access to healthcare and education and, and sustainable systems for, for cities and water and things like that. So if you, we're, not, we're in, a, in a day and age where if you don't satisfy at least one of these, like you shouldn't be in business. Uh, that's, mm -hmm. that's just the way I think about things. And then the third, reason, uh, third, the third condition to work with us is um, it has, the project has to have a path to execution and success. So execution and success when you handle hardware or architecture like we do, you have to have money. Right. You have to have the team. You have to have the vision. You have to have all these things. So when we have teams that come to us with a fleeting idea or, oh, I, I just thought of this last night and thought I would contact you, they can't work with us either mm. because we need people who are deeply, deeply passionate about what they're embarking on. Because typically these projects are so big that you will dedicate five to ten years of your life to that minimum. So we need to make sure that these people have that intention. That's such a great philosophy. So talk to me about the beginning of this journey. What were you doing? Were you in school for some of these things? What was your life like before you made the leap? Why did you make the leap? I don't think I've ever made a leap, um, okay. actually, because it's, it's always been like this kind of um, uh, organic transition i think the only leap i ever made was uh leave where i grew up <laughs> i okay. actually grew up right outside of paris um where um you know a lot of people that uh, i knew were not necessarily people who went to college i mean some of them did but it was it was not really a uh, a academic forward type of environment my own family didn't didn't go beyond high school so um so yeah, so that, I guess that was the leap. But one thing that's very interesting that when, when I look back at that time is, um, you know, when you have a semi-normal life or normal upbringing, whatever that means, going to college and, you know, working for a space agency are two very different things, right? Sure. Like one is somewhat attainable. The other one you have to work very, very hard at. Um, and so the way I was raised there was no difference between the two. They were both hmm. up there. They were both, you know, somewhat unattainable. Far away, yeah. Yeah, far away. And so when I, when I started going to college and, you know, having a good academic uh, path, I realized, well, what comes after that? You know, what's the dream that comes after that? So I, I, I started, uh, so I started design, which was pretty incredible. 
which I fell into design very, very by mistake. Um, you know, just saw it at the fair and I'm like, oh, that sounds like a career I could, I can be good at, I guess. And then in the middle of my design studies, uh, the, the design school I attended outside of Paris called Strat uh, opened their space department. And I'm like, this is the best <laughs> uh, serendipitous, you know, action happening in my life right now. Of course I Amazing. signed up and I was the first, yeah. first person signing up for, and, uh, and I, I, I studied that. And by the end of my studies, I uh, met the uh, director of a uh, space architecture program at the University of Houston. I met him in Paris and he invited me to come study in, in Houston. And I ended up with wow. a master's degree in space architecture, which very, very few people have. I mean, wow. some people even even think it's not even a real thing. Yeah, um, I, so I got I, that. I almost, never heard of it. Yeah, I got out about twenty years ago, and okay. um, and and the rest is history. But one thing that's very, very interesting, I guess, there's a shift that happened is that after I got my degree and after I, you know, I got acquainted with the world of space, I realized that. I could never be a good designer if I stayed in space. A good designer in the sense of how do I go very deep in, um, you know, balancing function, value, and aesthetics in a way that's actually meaningful. So what I did is I actually quit my uh, design, uh, my, my, my space career for about 10 years and really focused on design. So I work for all the design studios, you know, some of them pretty famous, I guess, um, that uh, really taught me how to see things, how to create things, how to build things, and how to work very well with engineers. And only after I became very comfortable in that world and fairly successful, did I realize that now is the time to come back to space. And of course, with the excitement of the commercial space industry, um, it, it made it a lot easier. But I, I, I then had a story to tell. I was now a decent designer entering the re-entering the world of space and merging that world of good design with extreme environment in a proper way. Such a great, great story arc. Very fascinating. Um, have you always been contemplative? Have you always been a philosophical person? Have you always been a fan of science fiction before, or is that also relatively new in your life? I think it's it's more it's more present in the second half of my life. I would say uh, contemplative. Yes, I've always looked at the infinitely small and and big, and 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 kind of tried to find my place in it. And then one day I realized that my place in it was not that important. <laughs> yes. and, and, right? <laughs> and, yes. and that I could actually travel uh, through these different scales in space and time with my own mind, right? When I realized I had a brain and the brain was able to do that, that, that was when, when all the doors opened. And so in that sense, yeah, science fiction kind of like helped me with that because it posed a lot of questions that are not necessarily things that are in front of us in our day-to-day life, but really think about what is the consequence of our actions today and, um, and how does it affect the world that uh, becomes tomorrow. And, and that affectation, right, that, that action-reaction is very present in everything that I do in life, in, in the way I live my personal life, in the way I, I make decisions in design, 
in my 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 professional work, all of that is is connected, right? Um, which is funny because I, I do something in my in my personal life that's very specific is that I sever um, my personal life from my my professional life. Like I have mm. all my evenings, all my weekends, all my vacations. These are sacred times, not cannot be impeded with. And the reason for that is that from a mental health standpoint, I realized that I needed that. If I was go, go, go all the time, I was not able to have the perspective necessary to think big about big problems. But if I turn things off, if I traveled the world, if I met, you know, people living the same way as they had for, you know, thousands of years, it actually reminded me how incredible the world is for one and how much potential what we can create for the future can be. So so that's one of my most prized, um, I guess, life action is to turn on and turn off things as as I please. Well, you you mentioned and we talking about space, and this is a lesson that I learned and took uh, on board many years ago. But how many astronauts do you need to hear that tell you they go to outer space, and what is the one thing that they all learn like clockwork? How important Earth is, how rare Earth is, how special Earth is, and how absurd it is that we who all dwell on this finite, tiny rock would hate each other, would go to war against each other, would kill each other, because we act as though we are different, but we are not, and we are on a singular planet, the only one that we're aware of, in infinite nothingness that can hold us and bring us all of that. And the first thing they want to do is come back down, go to a beach and kiss the sand and put their hands in the water. So a lot of these things, we talk about first principles, they emerge from these ideas. You can think of thinking about space inevitably brings you to things that are very earthly and dirt and things that grow. And they're not totally separate. And I love that that's been the experience for you as well, that through contemplating these other things, you realized... I need to go focus, get my own hands dirty, so to speak, and bring these two worlds together because space is cold and nothing and 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 horrible, basically, right? It is. It is. And that's one of the reasons why in the world of space, I'm extremely interested in welcoming more cultures and more countries, more people of different ages and backgrounds to be part of the conversation. Because for a long time, space has been focused on STEM, right? The engineering and the math and, and the, the technology behind uh, shooting people up to space or satellites. And so now, you know, we're thinking about the future of space policy, the future of entertainment in space, the f- you know, tourists. I know a lot of people in space agency hate the word tourist, but that's what we'll need in order to feed uh, the economy. Uh, that that is going to happen up there. What is the future of work in space, right? Mining, but also all the all the maintenance work that needs to happen for for humans to even set on the moon. So there's a lot of economical um, uh, opportunities that that feel very far away from each of us today, because we don't see ourselves as part of the space race 2.0 but it's really here tomorrow, right? The, the commercial space industry is, is starting to welcome more and more people. There are a lot of incredible research being done in biology, synthetic biology, manufacturing and future of food that is really accelerating our path towards becoming an interplanetary species. And that's not necessarily something that's each and every one of us on this earth wants, 
yet because we, we, we don't even know what that means. Actually, most of these agencies don't know what that means. But it's pretty incredible to live in a time where it sounds like a possibility. It sounds like we can actually build the building blocks to make that possible. And we'll need every single you know, person, brain experience uh, in order to make that happen. But another thing that's very important about welcoming cultures is the dis- diversification of ideas, right? For a long time, we were like, okay, uh, I want to get into space, let's build rockets. Like you have, you know, like you're about 70 years behind <laughs> what's going on here in the U.S. Uh, I mean, you can start if you want to, but good luck with that. But are there other aspects that your culture, your affinities, your where you grew up, how you grew up is going to enrich the way we think about the future of space? I'll give you an example. I'm talking to these uh, high schoolers in, uh, in Peru, and Peru has... Um, these potatoes that grow in this extreme high altitude, cold temperature, low oxygen environment. And this sounds very much like what growing potatoes on Mars would be. So Mm. what if we took all of that uh, ancient wisdom and applied it to the way we think about how to feed astronauts in space, but, but, but not based on, you know, pure science and breaking down every nutrient of, of the thing, but really thinking about the indigenous wisdom that comes with how do we feed ourselves when there's nothing that grows. And that's really um, the marriage that I'm most interested in, in in the world of space. And that can be applied to every other industry, right? I want to think about the future of education that way, the future of smart cities, the future of transportation, the future of AI, all of that. that. Yeah, all of that website. will be so much richer if we include each and every one of us completely agree all of the boundaries that separate us are meaningless and arbitrary we're all humans uh, i want to touch on one point that you made because very most people when they think of space and exploration they think about the very big and you said you're interested in the very big and the very small an interesting thing that i learned actually just recently is that if you take the very smallest thing that we're aware of on the smallest possible scale and then compare that to the size of the known universe, the very biggest thing that we can conceive of, we are actually closer to the size of the entire universe than we are to the smallest thing. We're more than halfway towards the size of the entire universe. I think that seems like something that most people wouldn't believe that is just insane. That's how small the very small gets. So how do you think about the very small? How has that impacted your work? Uh, I, lo- I love what you just said. Like, it, I, I, my brain just transported itself and just like had a little bit of a, a space travel here. Uh, and I love that. It's like, you know, ASMR, but for, for in, in other ways. Like for brains, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know... Um, what I love about the infinitely small is that decade after decade, we seem to get even smaller. Um, and, and, uh, and the particles that are, that are being discovered or proven to be uh, discovered are, are, are just so, it, it sounds like it borders on magic, right? The fact yeah. that we are able as a species to do that when like barely a hundred years ago, we, could, we, could, we, could, we couldn't really fly. It's, it's, it's incredible that we can do that. So, you know, particle accelerator work is, is I, I love that stuff. I mean, I don't understand half of it, to be completely honest, but 
but it's it's just it's just so so fascinating. Another thing that's a little bit bigger than particle size is um, is uh, genetics and and biology. You know what's going on with with CRISPR and synthetic biology in general is is, is incredible. The yeah. things that we can do, the the hyper personalization of of treatment uh, is going to be revolutionary for for us because for a long time we've we've devised um, you know medicine that uh, served the whole, and then now we're thinking about uh, you know targeting people at a certain age at a certain time of their life and and uh, in a certain condition and I love that I love 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 that and actually space is is accelerating a lot of that. Uh, I was uh, I learned fairly recently that. Uh, chemotherapy seems to be more effective in microgravity than it is on the surface Ooh. Uh, on mice. So Interesting. what does that mean for humans? Right. And, and this is just one of the many, many discoveries that we're, we're just like touching at this point. So I'm actually very ex- excited about the future of biology. Again, biology, I don't know much about it. Mm. Another thing about biology that's interesting is uh, materials, right? Um, a lot of people t- are talking about, sustainable materials or sustainable systems that would be more responsible for this planet. But we also have to look at what this planet's been doing for billions of years. This planet has been, um, you know, been run by nature and nature is the ultimate regenerative system, right? Everything that nature creates, nature takes away. And there's like this balance of things. There's no trash in nature. Everything becomes food for something else. And perhaps the future of how we design things and how we manufacture things could be become a little bit closer to how nature does it. Really thinking about the whole it. system, even before we we think about ideas. And so that systems thinking is is so incredibly important in everything we want to put out there. Right. Every time I put out a a wearable or a space station or something like that, I have to think: where does it go? What does it become? Right. Because, you know, humanity can only hold so many historical relics in in museums. What what does it become? Who does it pollute? And and what does it say about our humanity today when we travel in the future? Right. Um, I always try to to think about past civilization and what we actually conserve from them. We have architecture. We have artifacts and objects. We have some literature and we have trash. What else do we have? We don't have anything mm-hmm. else. So what are we going to leave this to this world uh, that's going to be discovered, you know, two, three, five, ten thousand years from now for the humans or whatever beings is going to to study us? Hot sauce packets from Taco Bell there. That's it. Because <laughs> they'll never go away. <laughs> they'll be here. Surprisingly forever. delicious. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I love the way that you think about things. I think it's 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 so brilliant. I have one what, before we wrap this up. I have one slightly off-topic thing. You know, we talked about CRISPR and gene editing. I know this is way outside the scope, but I just have to get your opinion on this. Uh, Peter Thiel and a lot of these billionaires—they're pursuing immortality like it's their job. What else do you do when you've won the game of life? Meanwhile, as a lover of philosophy, I believe that the entire case against immortality for any being is precisely people like Peter Thiel, not, I mean, we don't, I don't want him to be immortal. I'll put it to you that way. So how do you feel about the inevitability of human death? We talked about the cycle of earth and the the system as a whole. Do you see immortality as something to strive for 
or do you think that it's it's not good? It's funny because I don't see mortality and immortality as opposites. Uh, I think I think I like the idea of having the choice, um, and also immortality honestly sounds boring <laughs> in, in the sense that, that you know yeah, yeah i mean I, I guess our brain are not developed to the point where we can imagine what we can do for 2000 years right like i i have a hard time with that uh even though there's a lot of things i want to do but but peter Thiel is kind of someone who's well known for saying things that are quite um you know spicy at times yeah. and uh that's what excites him you have to think that this is someone who uh, has achieved a lot and is connected to a lot. And, and what excites him is the impossible. And as of today, immortality is impossible. Therefore, he wants it, right? And, uh, and what happens once he gets immortality, let's say? It happens in 20 years. W- what, else, what else would he want after that? So, you know, becoming perhaps a, uh, you know, type one, type two, type three type of uh, type of civilization where you you take over, you know, the solar system and beyond. Uh, perhaps that's what's on his mind. But but immortality is 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 an interesting subject in the sense that it's 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 a mix of philosophy and and also um, thrill. It's it's thrill. That's what it is, right? Uh, many expeditions. Uh, and, and, and money in past, uh, in past courts have been um, engaged in the, in the search for youth. It's funny because immortality and youth are, are not talked about the same way. So I, I, I would like to, you know, have a rejuvenated life or, 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 or body um, that keeps me alive and healthy until my last day, even if my last day is much earlier than I think. That sounds a right. lot more appetizing than than being an old, decrepit human I being agree. for for thousands of years, right? But uh, but I love the um, what do, what what it will take for us to become immortal is going to be so much incredible um, innovation in the world of medicine, right? The end of cancer, the end of suffering, the end of all of that. We will have to go through all of that before we reach immortality. That, that I know of, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm actually excited about those steps in mm-hmm. order to get to your mortality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm excited about the possibility of going to the dentist 2000 more times. I just <laughs> can't wait to renew my driver's license at the DMV 6,000 more times and stand in line for many thousands of more years. Uh, Anyways, thank you for going on that little thought journey. I know that's like way out of scope, but I'm just very interested because you seem to be a philosophical yeah. person. Um, well, I, I'm very grateful for your time. I do look at you as an inspirational figure in my own life. I strive to achieve some of the things that you have. Um, you are a great model for me of building a company in a better way, in a conscious way, being successful according to the metrics of the outside, but still having a set of values that you adhere to and only taking on those kind of projects. So I will definitely be using you and your work and your company as a personal inspiration for me for the next several years. So thank you for providing that. I really do appreciate it. And I'm a big admirer of the way that you look at the world and and the way that you have shaped your life. I think it's incredible. And I think that I'm not the only one who will think that it's incredible the more they get to know you. So I appreciate you. Well, thank you, Russ, for having me. It's been a, a real pleasure to to have this conversation and really thinking. Right, I, I felt like I was. Tra- I said that earlier. I felt like I was traveling during this this uh, this nice. conversation. 
um, you know, in space and time. And, and that's the magic of science fiction. And that's why we look up to it. And that's why I, and hopefully more people look to the future with bright eyes. And I want more people to see it that way. I couldn't agree more. And where can people see all of the breadth of work that you have done? Because again, it will make anybody think I'm sure of it. Uh, sure. Um, um, I'm pretty, you know, active on, on LinkedIn and on Twitter. So you can find me there, first name, last name. Uh, we have a website uh, that is actually being redesigned right now because uh, Ooh, all the projects exactly. that we have on our website is actually quite quite old. So we need to update okay. all of that. But uh, one of the uh, most exciting things that we've built over the years is a library of videos that explains how me and my partner think about design and the future of everything. And so that's called Future Future. And that can Amazing. be found on uh, YouTube. If you type in nonfiction design, you'll find it. Nonfiction design, great stuff, food for thought. Phenom, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, and with that, the official podcast is over. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Beat the Often Path podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes we've shared, it would mean a great deal to me if you subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice or on YouTube. And of course, if you shared either the show itself or this particular episode with somebody who might want to hear it to help us grow the audience for the show, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So if you've been a passive listener all this time, I get it. I understand. There's no big deal with that. But it would really, really mean a lot to me if you leave a positive review and help me grow this show. So thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time.